are you doing at this time of year? Just checking in. You know, a lot of us are looking forward to the holiday, spending time with family. Unless we're not. (laughs) If we're being honest, not all family relationships are easy. And some of them are informed by decades worth of emotional damage. And this happens in families often, that even though you have two people with the intentions to live well and, and wholeheartedly and with good intentions toward each other, they are on a collision course because of their expectations of each other. So what happens when you need to be there for someone who wasn't really there for you? This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Writer Anne-Marie Uman's new memoir chronicles years when her aging mother needed help, a mother who had left her flummoxed and angry so many times. The book is called As Long As I Know You, the mom book, and it goes some places we think people are probably already thinking about at this time of year. Anne-Marie Uman, welcome back to Stateside. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, I've heard people say so many times that we become just a little bit more like ourselves when we get older. Do you think that was true of your mom? Yes. In in some ways, it was very true of her. But what I loved about what happened with us is that the essence of her goodness finally rose to the surface in her decline. As I was losing her to dementia, finally, we found this strange, quirky friendship that we had never had before. And this is the story of how that evolved. (laughs) She was a tough cookie, as you know, because you read it. But she also had these core values that I think I finally learned to value. Mm. I wonder, I mean, you came to this experience not as a a young woman in your 20s or your 30s, but you point out that you were pushing 60 at a time when you were having to make really difficult decisions about her care, um, along with your siblings. I I guess I'm also wondering if the same could be said of you. Did you become a a little more like yourself in a way that, that made this possible for you? What an interesting question. Yes, I think in in the process of renegotiating relationships with our parents, and we, you know, we all have different kinds of relationships with our parents, but in that process, I began to see some of the things in myself that were of her. And um, whereas at one time, if I liked those things, I would have claimed them as my own. And now through this process that we came to, I think I recognize some of those same essences inside myself, Uh, things like um, her tenacity, which I perceived as stubbornness. (laughs) But now I feel more like, oh, that's a quality I inherited that uh, was modeled for me and that now I claim as both of ours. I mean, if we were to ask you about how how your relationship was with your mom, I mean, is there is there an, a kind of interaction that you think is pretty indicative of of how she treated you or how you and she interacted for most of your life? Um, you you kind of describe her as a no mom <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. a yes mom. But can, can yeah. you maybe just tell us a little bit about like what the typical conversation was? Well, her. 
her expectations were incredibly high. I was her oldest. I was, you know, the first, the daughter in a large farm, agricultural family. As you know, I've written a lot about rural life and yes. especially rural life here in Michigan. And um, I referred to her often as a mother of no, and I was a child of will, which put us on a collision course. And in some ways that defies the fact that my mother was a wonderful woman with immense capacities. And, and uh, if you met her, you would, Im- you would enjoy her. She offered so much to the community. She was devout, she was generous, she was um, warm-hearted, interesting. It was, and this happens in families often, that even though you have two people with the intentions to live well and, and wholeheartedly and with good intentions toward each other, they are on a collision course because of their expectations of each other. And that was the case of us, with us. And I feel like her personality was, um, her expectations were high, Therefore, when I fell short, which was almost inevitable, there would be a critical response. And I called her the mother of no, because she would say no, but no, and no. And she would say that even when yes would have benefited her and and me. (laughs) And so I think that's part of the background we have. She was ready to catch me at my faults and I was ready to catch her at her control. And it put us on that collision course, which was unfortunate because when I look back now, I think we were both really hoping for something opposite to that. And I don't think that's an unusual situation in families, but I think we held on longer than we needed to. (laughs) And so finding our way back took some doing. Could you set the stage for us a little bit? folks? Uh, some folks may know you for your work at Interlochen, but for mm-hmm. those who, who maybe don't know, what was going on in your life around the time your mom uh, started her, her, her serious decline? I mean, the book kind of begins with your father's death. So as in so many cases, it seems like some of this was precipitated by, by someone, else's, someone else's health crisis. Exactly, exactly. So when my father passed in 2010, the veil, as it so often happens, the veil was pulled back on my mother's decline and the early stages of her dementia were gradually revealed to us. And of course, that sets into motion a whole series of critical decisions that a family has to make when an elder is in that situation. And we, you know, she, of course, as we all do, wanted to stay in her home, but she didn't want help in her home. And, and so she would um, she would let the help that we tried to get for her go. And there was all kinds of decisions about finding um, a home that would be appropriate for her. All of that snowballed into the situation that families have to face when an elder is in decline and it has been masked by the other partner. And so I don't think this is an uncommon situation at all, but it's a situation in which we were total, for which we were totally unprepared. They had done such a good job at that, that we had this feeling they'd be sort of like the ever ready Easter bunnies. They'd just keep going forever. 
And when my father passed, that began this very difficult and long process, complicated, of course, by the fact that my mother and I were not friends and that we had to find a way into a relationship where we could actually speak to each other. And I think that's the real challenge that many of us face in this, in this long process. <laughs> there, there's a passage that in which you write about, uh, you know, kind of the, I guess, the, the essence of the decisions that, that the family was trying to make at the time. Do you mind reading for us? Oh, sure. And this is from the title chapter, which is As Long As I Know You, and it describes how the, how the title came to be. And uh, the setup is, my mother and I are sharing an apple. There are some 77 million of us boomers alive, and some 40 million of us are already doing serious care of an adult in some form. Mom's a frail 94. I'm a robust 60 plus. Some days I think she can't hold on much longer, that she will slip away like fog any time. Mortality is what we are talking about here, and I am trying to figure out how to approach it with mom. She does not easily speak of death. She's finally signed all the right papers, but I have never asked her this. What makes her daily life worth living? What I know, even though I helped create this life she is living, I would be hard-pressed to live as she is living now. Judge Judy... Bingo, canned pears, starlings at an empty feeder, boredom, loneliness. Oh, we made her safe so she could stay alive. But what makes her want to stay alive? I hand her another apple wedge. She studies it. Skin is tough, she says. Out of season apples sprayed to keep the skin intact. I decide to pare the skin down. I breathe. Mom, I need to ask you a question. Soft opening. She has a mother's sixth sense for alarm that never fades. It kicks in. She looks at me sideways. What's wrong now? I use the slow on-ramp. Mom, I figure you will live for a long time yet. But I want to avoid what happened when dad died, us trying to figure out what to do if you were really sick and couldn't tell us what you want. And so I wondered if you can tell me what it is that makes life worth living for you so I would know that if you couldn't have that, whatever it is, I should let you go. I expect her to scold me for bringing it up, tell me not to worry about her, that it's in God's hands, which it may well be, but I'm not trusting God all that much these days. But my master of avoiding all things death, mother, Answers like it's a second grade question. Oh, if I didn't know you, I sit back. So if you didn't know, couldn't interact with people, I want a more nuanced explanation. If I didn't know you, you kids anymore. She nods to another apple slice, eager for the sweet now that it's peeled. As long as I know you, she'd said it right the first time. Does she realize how this changes who we are? Anne-Marie, that's 
that's a conversation that a lot of people never quite work up the nerve to have with their parents or just just miss the opportunity to have with their parents. Um, How remarkable that in that moment, not only was she able to, you know, get to the core of what it is that you were trying to ask her, but to answer in a way that she kind of might not have been able to if she, you know, in her younger years. I think that's absolutely true. She would have avoided that question like the plague. She really didn't like to talk about death. And the only reason I found the courage, it came from someone else, uh, Atul Gawande's book on being mortal, discusses that question and how important it is for families, especially families with elder elders, especially families with where elder care is involved, to ask that question. And in that book, he says, he asks his father the question finally. And his father says, as long as I can, um, I think it's sit in a recliner, eat chocolate ice cream and track a football game, I want to stay alive. And that gave him information in that answer that he would not have had in the same way that my mother gave me information in that very simple question response, as long as I know you, that I would not have otherwise had. And that influenced a lot of the decision-making that followed. So it also emotionally gave me insight into her own um, values, that after this long and sometimes dysfunctional relationship, knowing us, knowing me, it was critical to her understanding of herself. And I thought that was just a remarkable gift. Uh, it gave us information and it gave me um, a psychological place to really begin rebuilding the relationship. More after a break. We'll be right back. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Some of the experiences you write about are so specific to the animosity that you and your mom experience toward each other. And some of them are so universal, things that anybody with an elder relative might recognize, Uh, you know, dismissing caregivers, refusing help. If you could talk to yourself somehow years before this began when your father was still alive and (laughs) maybe offer a little advice on writing this out, what would you say? Mm. Oh, thank you for that question. I would probably ask myself to try and practice 
forgiveness a little more openly. I had set myself to a viewpoint of what we were, she and I, and though we were civil and, and you know, we had family gatherings and, and were together sometimes, we were not close because I felt unforgiving and I suspect she did too. And so I think I would say to people that that sense of does that history matter as much now? Does it really matter in our adulthood? What was said decades before? Does it matter that expectations were or were not met in ways that were um, unfulfilling? I would really like to explore that as a, to have explored that as a younger person. And I think it's a lesson that I take from the book that mm. after I wrote it, I thought, oh my goodness, yes, it's really, it's really a book about forgiveness. It's about finding my way through that complexity of the past into um, a future or at least a present that was more companionable and warm and friendly without um, disengaging entirely with the fact that we had a past, but also not letting it dominate what we were to become in that moment. It sounds like you've been able to you've been able to reach some kind of different place with this. Um, do, you find, do you find that you're able to think on past years with any different lens than you do now? Yes, I feel like there is, lens is the perfect word, April, because it is after you lose someone, you have the lens of loss, and that shifts a lot of things. And I think maybe that is part of the process of, of grief and mourning and death, is that you are given that new lens through which you can reevaluate everything. And I, and I don't want to make light of grief in any way, but I think one of the gifts of grief is that reassessment is then allowed in a different way because you can never have the, the bad, even though you can never have the good either. So you have the freedom then to reassess that whole thing. And I think that's part of what happens and that's what's happening to me. It still continues to happen to me that I rethink what we were and also learning more and more about her life through other sources. I've started to understand what it was that troubled her about me. And I can have that double lens, you know, now I can start to see what she was seeing of me from her eyes. And that's a real gift too, even though I can't say that to her anymore. I guess I do kind of say it to her still. And I think all of us still, whether we're angry or, or beloved, we uh, talk to them. We think about those we have lost. It's part of our life process. There's just one more thing I, I have to ask you about. The dedication to the book is written to your mother and to all of those in, quote, the homes, which I just found so absolutely chilling. 
Um, it has really been a time in recent years for congregate care, assisted living, dementia care, all of it. And, you know, there's so many people who lost loved ones without ever, you know, maybe without even ever seeing them or talking to them again. Yes. Uh, you know, lacking mm-hmm. lacking physical contact. And I think that I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Michigan or, or America has come to any kind of serious reckoning about elder care, but I guess if if that were to happen, what what kind of what kinds of conversations would you like us to have that we're not having right now about how elders are treated when they when they enter congregate care settings? This is such an important topic and as we boomers move through the our aging process, this is, this is going to become more and more of an issue. And, and it's also going to become more and more difficult because younger people are going to have to look at this and they are in that sandwich generation of looking to care for the older, the elder and also facing the, the crisis in childcare that also exists in this country. So it's a difficult and double whammy for many of those um, generations who are in the middle. But the most important thing I think that needs to happen is for those who end up in a home or in congregate living, as you say, which is, of course, with parentheses around it in every way, there must be well-trained well-paid, well-benefited people. The people I'm, I ended up valuing as, you know, so much were those nurses and aides and, and cooks and people who mopped the floors. I ended up feeling such a kinship and deep appreciation for them because they were in contact with her every day. And they could tell me things that I otherwise didn't know. And they were caring for her once we, we had to make that move. And I, I just felt like every day you should, be, you should be better paid. You should be given the respect that doctors and, and you know, people who, who are actually not nearly as much in contact with those elders are given. So that's... This is something I think we really, really have to look at is how do we create an atmosphere of respect for those people who are caring for our parents and our loved ones? Uh, How do we pay them better? How do we create better benefits? And how do we give them the absolute best training so that they can carry out this vocation with, with grace and understanding? It's I, I, I just can't say enough about that. Underneath the personal message of this book, the big message is we, we have to honor those people. Anne-Marie Oman. Her latest book is called As Long As You Know Me, the mom book. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for the, the very generous, sometimes unsparing look you gave us at this relationship. We appreciate it. I am so grateful to you for asking, April, and I just really appreciate the fact that this is um, opening people to this discussion of elder care and what it means today. I think it's one of the things we really have to look at right now. Thanks a lot. 
And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes when you're ready for more streaming, more listening, more awesome books at michiganradio.org. Our podcast today was produced by Mercedes Mejia, our show's director. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kavansag, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you on the flip side. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.